Disclaimer, the information on this podcast is not intended to be an offer to sell nor a solicitation of an offer to buy any securities or investment advisory services. Welcome to the Energy Council Podcast Investor Series. Hey guys, welcome to the Energy Council's Investor Series Podcast. I'm your host, Ben West, and today I'm joined by Shia Hosenzade, Managing Partner and Founder of Onyx Point Global Management. During this episode, Shire talks about Onyx Point's culture of investing in cyclical industries and walks us through their differentiated investment approach. He also explains the need for financial innovation on a go-forward basis in order to help to fill the financing gap and bridge investor concerns around the sustainability and profitability of the asset class in times of market distortion and dislocation. Hope you guys enjoy. Hi, Shire. Thanks very much for doing this today. It's great to have you on. And it's a pleasure to be on with you today. Thank you for having me. Shia, I like to start things off on a personal note. This is how we've done it over the past few episodes. And just to give our listeners a bit of background and and to help set the scene. So it'd be great if you could just start by giving us a bit of background on yourself. Where did you grow up? Where did you study? And where did your interest in the energy industry originate? And how did you get into the industry? Just give us an overview of your career up until founding Onyx Point back in 2017. Well, I grew up in uh, Abu Dhabi in the 1980s, and at that point in time, Abu Dhabi was a, uh, a small oil town, very different than the thriving metropolitan city that most of us associated with today. Just to give you a perspective on life in Abu Dhabi, this is a place where population is about 200,000 people at the time. There are no movie theaters for a young person growing up there, no shopping malls, and in fact, very few of us even had access to cable television. And it's obviously in the desert. And so in the summer, the temperatures can get up to 110 degrees Fahrenheit and humid on top of that. So as a young person growing up in the 1980s, you had to come up with creative ways to spend your free time. And I had an interest in computer programming. So for me, what that meant was spending a lot of my time in the computer science lab. When I graduated from high school, I had gone to a system that was a British education system. There were really no college towns near us where we lived in Abu Dhabi. And frankly, there were no universities either. So I applied to go to university or college in the United Kingdom. This is now 1999. I'm graduating with a degree in economics and philosophy from London. For a broader economy is coming out of a, a deep financial crisis. This is the Asian financial crisis. We're recovering out of it. The stock markets are, you know, starting to hum again. M&A activities coming full swing. And being in London, which is obviously a, a financial hub in many respects, and being at the London School of Economics where I studied, you really sort of come across, you know, titans of industry. We had people like Bob Rubin come and lecture at the school. We had folks like Mervyn King, who at the time was a governor on the Central Bank of England's uh, Monetary Policy Committee. So it really gave me an opportunity to get exposure to investment banking, to Wall Street and finance. And that's where I decided I wanted to be when I graduated. So I applied to a handful of investment banks, and I was fortunate enough to get a handful of offers. And as I was sort of thinking about where I wanted to be and what I wanted to do, I was in a, in a lucky position where one of the banks called me up and said, look, what would it take for you to join us? And I said, well, you know, geez, here I am in London. It's been a great four years and never really worked in New York. What if I could spend a year? 
are rotating through the analyst program in New York. And they said, done. And effectively, that's how I ended up in finance in New York. At the time, this is Credit Suisse First Boston. I was excited to join. They had a thriving technology investment banking business led by a very talented investment banker by the name of Frank Quattrone. And so I thought, well, maybe it will be an opportunity for me to go back and do stuff that's related to my interest in computer science. So here I am in New York. I'm rotating through the analyst program. I'm getting a chance to meet with different groups and different people. And I come across the energy group at Credit Suisse, which at the time was depending on who you asked, either the first or the second biggest driver of profitability in investment banking. And I meet the person who's running it, who was at the time a rising star, Bio Owen Lessie. And the firm was doing some really interesting things. Again, we're coming out of this financial crisis. The world looked a little bit like it does today for energy. Oil prices had collapsed and they were starting to come back. There was a very large wave of consolidation. And on top of that, in the United States in the late 1990s, under the Clinton administration, we had deregulation in the uh, power markets. And so that gave rise to companies growing unregulated generation businesses. These are companies that we know today, like Calpine was going from a small cottage industry to a big powerhouse and independent power production at Enron. And so they looked at me and they said, well, geez, you grew up in an oil town. Maybe you know a thing or two about oil which was kind of them because quite frankly, at that point, I didn't know anything about energy. What was really interesting to me was here was a sector that was very large in the global economy, that was very topical in just about every newspaper, every headline that you looked at. And here was a firm that was sitting in the middle of some really interesting things that were happening in the US and frankly, the global energy markets. And so that's how I ended up in the energy business. That's really interesting. Thanks, Shire. You said you grew up in Abu Dhabi in the 80s. Now, obviously, New York being the financial hub that it is, is what attracted you over there following your time in London. And I mean, you were pushed towards the energy industry and you had those previous links to the oil industry with Abu Dhabi being an oil town, as you alluded to. But having grown up in Abu Dhabi in the 80s and then going back to study in London, I'd be interested to hear more about your perception of the US oil markets and how they fit into the global picture. I mean, if I'm not mistaken, that was roughly 10 years before the shale boom took off. So it'd be interesting to have that context on how the US was perceived within the context of the global oil markets and particularly from the point of view of you having grown up in Abu Dhabi. So let's talk about the global oil market and where the US fit in. And I think it's an interesting point because it's a very different place today than where we were even 10 years ago, as you correctly point out. Since the 1970s, if you look at the history of the U.S. energy markets, production, oil production in the U.S. has been in perpetual decline pretty much since uh, President Carter's uh, administration. And if you actually go back a little bit in history, going off of memory here, but I think it was during Carter's administration where we had two interruptions to primetime television. The first, I think, was the president telling the American population that we were on the verge of a natural gas crisis. And the second was an interruption to announce that we were potentially facing an energy crisis with long lines at the uh, gas pump for your car. And really those crises were the outgrowth of, on the one hand, U.S. production declining every single year from something like 8 million barrels a day, all the way down to 5 million over a 40-year stretch. 
And then number two was uh, what was going on in the Middle East in terms of some of the oil embargoes and the Iranian revolution. So when historically we've thought about the U.S. market, we've really thought about the U.S. as a net consumer and demand center, not so much as a supply center. And I think what you're alluding to, Ben, is that that all changed in a space of a decade here, starting in, call it the early turn of the, of the shale revolution uh, in 2000 and call it 2011, the U.S. started to become a substantial force. And in 2000, I think it was three or four years ago, we actually became a net exporter for a period of time. And we've continued to grow to become one of the largest, and depending on the time you look at, the largest or one of the top two largest oil producers in the world. So there's been a period of enormous change. 100%. Let's fast forward then to today and focus on Onyx Point. And, and maybe you could just give us an overview of Onyx Point. Just it'd be useful before we, we dive into any more detail or focus on sort of where the markets are at today and where you're focusing your efforts and attention today. It would just be useful uh, and interesting to get an overview of your current exposure. So for example, you entirely focus on energy, sort of what's, how many assets under management do you have at the moment? What's your asset preference? Are you predominantly upstream focused or do you cover the broad spectrum of the energy value chain? And it would just be useful to get some overview on that if, if you wouldn't mind speaking to that a little bit. I think it's helpful to step back and maybe zoom out a little bit and talk about what's the DNA of our firm? How is it come to be, and then I can segue from that into what Onyx Point today does. Uh, going back to my own experience in the late 90s and early 2000s, one of the things that I think has been a constant, certainly over the course of my career in the energy business, is that this is an industry that's obviously cyclical like many others, but it exhibits characteristics that I think make it a little bit more volatile than most cyclical industries. And what I mean by that is there's a large element of policy that affects the industry. There's a large amount of geopolitics that affects the industry. And then on top of it, it's one of the largest consumers of capital of any sector in the world economy. So that combination of cyclicality, policy impact, geopolitics, and dependence on capital has meant that this is a sector that has almost persistently gone from crisis to crisis. And when I started in the industry, it was a crisis of demand, at least in the oil market. Today, we're in a crisis of supply. And if you go back and look at history for the last 50 or so years of recorded history where we have good empirical data, I think you'll find that depending on which segment of history you look at, there is a repetition. And obviously, no two cycles are the same, but the constants is that you have periods where you have a decade long of excess supply, followed by inadequate supply with destocking and decapitalizations, and the whole thing repeats itself. Now, this time around, we have a whole layer of uh, secular tailwinds as well, which we can talk about. But as we think about the industry and going back to sort of my own experience uh, growing up in the industry, one of the things that maybe, again, was more happenstance than by design is after I started out as an investment banker working on financings and mergers and acquisitions, the firm I was working for acquired or merged with DLJ. And one of the things that DLJ was very well known for at the time was its leveraged finance franchise. So they had Bennett Goodman and Kenny Mollis who were running that business and they were doing a wonderful job of it. And I was 
somewhat fortunate in the sense that one of my mentors suggested that I go work in that group. And ultimately what I ended up doing is after a period of mergers, acquisitions, and consolidation, I got a chance to work on the right side of the balance sheet where the liabilities sit. And if you think of most energy investors in private equity, they tend to be focused on the left side of the balance sheet. In other words, they're focused on asset growth. And that ability, or I guess that experience, if you will, of toggling from assets to liabilities and back to assets is really critical to how we think about this sector. And you asked about Onyx Point. So Onyx Point, really the DNA of Onyx Point personifies that culture of investing in cyclical industries. In other words, during rising commodity markets where capital is flowing and growth has been restored, we tend to focus more on the left side of the balance sheet, on driving value from assets. In markets like the one that we're in today, where you're seeing decapitalization, you're seeing substantial outflows from the sector into technology and other sectors, where the sector is over-levered, it's experiencing a deflationary and deleveraging uh, period, we tend to focus almost exclusively on the right side of the balance sheet. So as we think about our business model, I guess the way I would describe it to you is we are focused on the commodity sector. Subsectors include upstream, they include midstream, power. We can look at oil field services, although I'll tell you we haven't been very active there for a number of years. And we can look at tertiary industries that are affected by the commodity cycle. But I think where we take a slightly different approach, or perhaps we have a differentiated investment model, is that we generally try to come into situations with a bit of a contrarian bent. We're not momentum investors and we're not growth investors. We tend to come in through different pathways into investments. Sometimes it's on the credit side. Sometimes it's a restructuring or a bankruptcy. And other times through platform build-outs and acquisitions. And I think that's been the constant in my career, at least for the better part of the 15 years that I've been on the buy side. Brilliant. Thanks, Shire. Um, that's interesting. And, and with that in mind, let's go back to when you found the firm back in 2017. Again, that was a time when the industry was emerging from the previous downturn of 2014 to 16. You clearly saw an opportunity there. And presumably, from what you're saying, you were leaning more towards the right-hand side of the balance sheet. I mean, the industry was in distress, and presumably there were opportunities out there that you saw to capitalize on. So I suppose a question that would be interesting to ask would be, what opportunity did you see out there to capitalize on, given the market conditions? And what was your five-year plan setting out? I will tell you quite candidly, we, uh, our crystal ball is just about as foggy as anybody's when it comes to five-year plans. We didn't have one then, and I'm not sure I could tell you that we have a, a five-year plan today. Our plan, our ethos, if you will, has always been to try to find terrific assets, great companies that are run well and try to find pathways to create exposure to those businesses in times of dislocation where we can effectively ensure that we have an asymmetric risk reward. And what I mean by that is, you know, we want to make sure that our investors are principal protected whenever possible. And we are getting the upside, if you will, the optionality that comes with investing in energy by virtue of some of the sweat equity, the structuring, or the alpha that you know, we would be able to add along the way. In terms of the history of the firm and formation, we started, as you point out, at a time when the market was dislocated, much like it is today. And at that point in time, 
the high yield market was experiencing elevated levels of default. The commodity market was experiencing elevated levels of volatility, certainly not as much as it is today, but still several standard deviations from historical levels. And so we spent most of our time in the 2015 and 16 timeframe looking at opportunities in secondary credit. And quite frankly, that's where we see the best opportunity today, given that the amount of capital that's flown into the energy sector has also lifted allocations in the secondary credit market. And we're now in a position where many of those investors are trying to reduce their exposure, either because of concerns around secular tailwinds, environmental concerns, or otherwise just fatigue with the amount of losses and volatility that they've suffered in the energy market. So that's really, I think, a good parallel, albeit what we see today is orders of magnitudes more extreme than what we saw in 2017 and 16. Absolutely. And you must feel, therefore, that you're pretty well positioned this time around to take advantage of the current environments, given sort of, given that you don't have the weight of the previous downturn hanging over you. And, and you must feel that you, therefore, are in, a, in an advantageous position to be able to capitalize on, on a lot of the opportunities that are out there at the moment. It's a different time and it's a different playbook, to be honest with you, versus the last downturn. I think most people who we were you know, running into in the market in 2015 and 16 had a long-term bullish view of the commodity and of the assets. And in fact, there were quite a large number of generalist investors at that point in time in distressed hedge funds and distressed credit funds that were historically not participants in energy, but saw in a low default rate environment, energy as being a great vehicle to participate in distress. I think today it's a very different situation. We've seen the exit of a large number of those generalists on the back of pretty tough experience over the last few years of large losses on the one hand. And secondly, I think this time around, there's a real debate around the role of energy in the world economy, the role of energy is an asset class in people's portfolios. And depending on where you come out in that debate, you will have a very different playbook in terms of how you want to deploy capital, if at all, into the energy sector. Now, obviously, as a firm, we have our own views, and sometimes it tends to be we find ourselves in a slightly different mindset than the market, and that's really what makes a market. But I think this is a very different market today than what we've seen three years ago. A hundred percent. And I think when we've spoken in the past, you've talked about how you're active across the entire capital structure from senior secured debt across to private equity. Obviously, you've alluded already today to how you're leaning more towards the right side of the balance sheet and more the, the credit side at the moment. And they're the opportunities that are to be had as we emerge from this current downturn. I just want to bring it back to sort of the left side of the balance sheet. And, and if we look at the actual equity side, asset growth side, I know when we spoke recently, you said to me, it makes no sense to buy private equity assets at the moment. You said that the bid-ask spread is too wide, but sellers are holding on to old valuations. And before we move on to the credit side, which is where I do want to dig into some of these topics in a little more detail, maybe you could just explain on terms of the private equity side, the bid-ask spread being too wide. Why is that? And how long will it be until we start to see that bid-ask spread begin to narrow? And as well, what will it take for the private equities to start perking up again and, and paying serious attention to what opportunities the industry can offer? 
There's quite a couple of different themes to unpack in there. Let me start by talking about the private equity market. One of the challenges I think that we're facing right now is, and I'll focus for a moment here on the upstream side, because it's a little bit different as you look at midstream and other segments of the market. But one of the biggest challenges that we're facing right now is that we have a confluence of the exodus of credit financing, which makes financing transactions very difficult, number one. Number two, we've had a very violent and also a very sharp decline in asset prices as observed in the public markets, which has made cash deals very difficult to stomach for a seller unless they absolutely need the capital. And then the third thing that's happened is if you look at the typical upstream asset, so much of the value of an upstream asset is in the terminal value. In other words, when you look at private equity assets that tend to be, generally speaking on the upstream side, they tend to be smaller in size and they tend to be a little bit earlier stage in life cycle. They tend to be very capital consumptive. And so when you put these three factors together, when you don't have financing, when you've had a sharp move down in the assets and the value of a prospective investment determines is determined so much by where oil prices are and where valuation multiples are at the time that you come to sell it, it makes it very challenging to price that asset correctly. It makes it somewhat indeterminate. And if you are going to lock up capital for an extended period of time and you uh, don't have visibility on the return profile or the cash flow profile, it makes it all the more challenging. So that necessitates a, a pretty significant discount for buyers to be compensated for the unknowables and the known unknowables as well. And on the flip side, if it's sellers, unless they really have to, are probably not willing to part with assets at what you know some people would say is closer to the bottom than we've been any time in the last 20 years. So that makes the deal dynamic somewhat challenging and it necessitates more creative solutions and outright sales. And I think you can see that it's best evidenced by the fact that you know there's been a lot of M&A so far this year, but almost all of it has been number one in the public markets and number two, it's been cashless. So you've got two companies coming together for a low premium cash, excuse me, stock for stock merger. And those are really the only possible ways to try to obviate some of the concerns that I laid out. Now, over time, there's a number of, I think, catalysts that might cause the thawing out of, obviously, if the commodity markets recover, if you start to see supply shortages form, given the significant pullback in global drilling and in U.S. drilling, that could obviously be one driver, although it's hard to sit here today and argue for a significant move up in commodity prices based on the inventory levels. Another uh, could be some entry of additional capital into the marketplace. We don't see that. In fact, we see many traditional financing sources from the banks to traditional limited partners are retrenching, both because of the politics of investing in fossil fuels and also because of the losses. The combination of you know, financial losses and ESG pressure are almost the perfect storm here. So we don't see that turning around. So absent, you know, a real turnaround in the availability of capital or a real turnaround in the valuation of assets or the commodities, we think it'll be some time before people come back into the M&A markets to sell assets at levels that we think are going to compensate buyers for the risks that I just went through. Thanks, Shire. And therefore, let's focus on 
where there is more opportunity, arguably, to do deals, and, and that's more on the credit side, where those available credit lines actually lie. And I know that when we spoke recently, and, and so far to, during our conversation today, you've alluded to how you're interested in these bankruptcy, these distressed cases. Firstly, it would be interesting if you could just speak a little bit more as to why that is and, and how you actually are able to structure some of these credit deals to get them over the line. But I think as well, just a theme that has been coming up regularly in a lot of the conversations that we have been having is that the industry has been overcapitalized if we look at the US. And so you've alluded to it as well. There's been ill discipline within the industry. The returns haven't been delivered over the last five years or so, which has been part of the reason for this exodus of capital. And a lot of the investors that we have spoken with have also said that they're sort of differentiated between the high quality, high demand tier one assets that are going to be able to attract capital in the current environment and do offer significant or sufficient scale to be able to justify investment going forward. And they've differentiated between these types of assets and then the tier two, tier three assets, which in some cases they've described as being functionally illiquid and said will fail to attract bidders. So it would be interesting as well as sort of hearing more about how you're approaching the bankruptcy, the distress cases, um, and how you, you actually are able to structure those deals to get them over the line and be comfortable with the risks that you're taking on. Just to hear about what types of assets you're willing to consider and evaluate as well. I mean, you're not going to go for any assets. So what are the assets that you're actually going to be prepared to look at and, and that are going to justify taking that leap and putting your capital to work? If you uh, look at the anatomy of any of the last three or four downturns, be it energy or the global financial crisis or the dot-com bust, and then the Asian financial crisis before that, so on and so on, I think one of the things that stands out is that the first line of defense when a sector decapitalizes is that the price of liquid securities legs down very sharply. And we've certainly seen that in this cycle as well, both in the price of equity securities as well as the price of credit securities. And you know, if you look at, for example, the, um, the S&P 500 oil and gas index, it's down about 50% year to date. If you look at the credit market, last time I looked, something like one out of every three issuers were trading at distress levels and the default rate is approaching 19, 20% which is frankly the highest it's ever been in recorded history. So it stands to reason that the markets that can most quickly reflect price decisions and most quickly reflect the seller's desire to exit at any price are probably the first to reflect the risks and the reward or the perceived risks rather and the reward of the market before illiquid assets do. And so when we think about our business, we don't really do very much in the way of private credit, which is, I think, maybe what you were alluding to. We do private equity and we do secondary credit. And then, as you mentioned, we occasionally do distress for control bankruptcy investments where we think the management team is really well positioned or where we have a management team that we want to partner with and we can take the assets from point A to point B. But fundamentally, what we are looking for is the same in all cases. Number one, it has to be a franchise asset. It has to be an asset that has staying power either because of the cash flow characteristics or because of in a midstream business, the locational value or in a power market because of you know the regulatory environment 
in which the assets sit and the contracts that they have. Now, those are harder to come by because the supply of those quality assets tends to be limited by definition. If you're top quartile, that means 75% of the market is not you. It's a lower quality than you. And so we always start with the asset and that's been you know, the holy grail for our business. Right now, we're not doing a whole lot in the private markets. So with the secondary markets being so dislocated, we tend to look at both stressed and distressed businesses and not all those businesses need to restructure. Quite often you will do very well buying the secondary bonds at a discount to par of the business that's just being mispriced because either the baby is being thrown out with the bathwater or the company has undertaken a number of very constructive steps to, to rebuild its balance sheet that the market is yet not yet giving it credit for. So again, given where we are in the innings of this cycle, we see the best value at that portion of the liquidity spectrum over time. And I don't know if it's a year or two or three years, you will start to see the transmission mechanism filter from the public to the private markets. And as that transmission of discount starts to move into the private markets, you'll probably see us spend a lot more time trying to structure deals and, and go into the private side. It makes perfect sense. And I think just to add on what you were talking there about cash flow characteristics of an asset, I know when we recently spoke again, you told me that you're doing work setting up a PDP vehicle. Are you able to just go into a little bit more about what that entails and how it works and what types of assets and companies stand to gain from it? I mean, I presume it's set up to be a high intensity cash flow generating vehicle and therefore just maybe you could just give us a bit of an overview as to how that works, how you're setting that up and, and sort of how that positions you well for future growth going forward. So I would make the comment that if you look at fossil fuels, not all fossil fuels are created equal. Certainly oil is different from gas. Uh, which is different from steam coal and met coal. And we're in a market right now where, generically speaking, allocation models are shifting away from all fossil fuels almost indiscriminately. And if you look at oil and gas in particular, and energy that derives from oil and gas, somewhere between 2 to 5% of the global economy, in one shape or form, either directly or indirectly, is affected by that sector in the economy, in the global economy. On the flip side of it, if you look at um, investor allocations, investors are very underallocated to that sector today by historical norms. 98% of investor portfolios as measured by the S&P today is in something other than oil and gas. And that compares historically with somewhere between 10%, 15%, depending on when you look. So it stands to reason that either the global economy has to dramatically reduce its share of oil and gas in the production process or the transportation of uh, goods, services, and people, and that needs to happen very quickly, or absent that, our asset allocation models need to converge back to some level of physical usage. It's not otherwise possible to have that convergence between asset allocations and, and true consumption uh, sustain itself. So whether it's private markets or structured finance, we're fundamentally looking for situations where we can create payoff structures that provide our investors with ongoing return that's not predicated on the terminal value, as I said earlier, uh, that can be in the form of cash yield. And that's equally available in, in fixed income as it is if you buy a physical asset that has fixed income characteristics. And we fundamentally believe that the optionality associated with owning physical assets, whether it's inflation optionality, 
whether it's operational improvements or what have you, we think those are potentially valuable three, five years down the road. So we're looking at a number of different ways to approach that market, not just in the upstream market, but more broadly. And if you look at it against the backdrop where the 30-year and the 10-year government rate has fallen to significant lows, I mean, the 10-year today is less than 1%. And on some of these fixed income markets, fixed investment grade or crossover, investors are accepting returns that are in some cases negative on a real basis after inflation. We think that there may be value to be realized by physical ownership that uh, generates fixed income characteristics when it comes to risk with potential equity upside. So that's really philosophically, uh, you know, how I would couch for you. Absolutely. Thanks, Shire. And I think just before I start to wrap it up, I, I just want to cover two more things, really. I, I'm not saying anything new here when I talk about, as we emerged from the previous downturn, obviously, all the banks were exiting the industry, fleeing from the space. I think back in 2018-19, we saw a few of the banks start to come back to the industry. But now more than ever, as, as you've mentioned, access to credit lines has decreased dramatically. The industry's need for private credit, for debt funds that have been created to fill that financing gap is, has re-emerged on never-before-seen levels. And I guess the question I'd be interested to ask you are, do the debt funds still need the industry? And by that, I mean this great uncertainty. Uh, you've, met, you've mentioned to it, all the headwinds the industry's, the industry's facing right now, the, the different factors that investors have to take into consideration. There's great uncertainty surrounding demand recovery, oil price recovery. There are more ESG headwinds than ever before. Alternative and increasingly competitive energy sources are predicted and forecast to meet future demand growth. And I guess without that certainty of oil price recovery and scalability, you've mentioned to how it's putting private equity off and, and the barriers that that is putting up to the industry's access to private equity. But does the industry still offer credit providers the same upside potential to flip and turn around a business that it did, say, back in 2014-16? How, how do you see the industry as you're approaching it now with that in mind? 2014 and 16, you had an environment where shale assets were beginning to generate price discovery. And there was such a tremendous appetite uh, amongst institutional allocators, limited partners, for example, private equity, corporate buyers, foreign buyers, that there was a disconnect on the one hand between the fixed income markets that sometimes tend to not want to give prospective credit for what might be. And so securities and fixed income were trading off relative to the underlying values for which you could sell those companies for in the M&A market. And so that gave rise almost to an arbitrage-like playbook. And so for those of us who were both in the fixed income market and in the M&A market, much like our team has been, it created a really unique window of opportunity to take advantage of that mispricing, if you will, between what the credit markets were willing to, to give credit to, for lack of a better term, and, and what people were seeking to buy assets for. And the other piece of this was that you just had all these new shale plays popping up. You know, the Permian didn't really sort of take flight until 2014, and then it was the Southern Midland Basin, and then the Northern Midland Basin became well-known and commercialized, and then the Delaware Basin, and so on and so forth. So the rate of change was positive, and that was reinforcing for a lot of people. And the fixed income market offered an opportunity for a cheaper entry point if you were not 
as comfortable underwriting multiple expansion or growth. Today, we're almost in a reverse scenario where you have multiple contraction, certainly in the equity markets. And in the fixed income markets, you have this dynamic where you have a combination of capital flight in the senior levels of the capital structure, like the commercial banks. And then you also have a lot of what we call real money allocators, mutual funds, and folks who traditionally have anchored new credit offerings also pulling back. So it's a much, much more complicated framework, I think, to be looking at that. And on top of it, what is oil price? What is the oil price going to be 3, 6, 12, 18 months down the road? And then what is the impact of regulation and government policy and OPEC policy going to be on it? So I think it's much more of a idiosyncratic market today when it comes to asset selection. And it's all laced with a lot of macro risk. So I think it's a much more complex undertaking to be investing in those types of situations today than it might have been call it in 2014 to 2016. No, absolutely. And so I think then just before we wrap up, I just want to delve a bit deeper into creative financing structures and creating more optionality and the different ways in which investors are finding ways to enter or exit certain segments of the market and to find ways of working within the frameworks and market limitations that you've set out in order to get deals over the line. So something that I'd just be interested to know about is are you looking at reversionary structures with EMP companies in the form of override deals or override carve-outs? And is this an effective way of creating value? So maybe I'll make a broader statement here, Ben. We are going through a period of creative destruction, and that creative destruction probably touches the finance market as much as it does the industry itself. If you think about the traditional forms of financing, in the oil and gas sector, historically, 50 cents of every dollar was debt funded. And of that 50 cents, half was bank debt. Usually the other half was high yield and the remainder was equity. And historically, oil and gas had a competitive cost of capital with alternative energy. If you look at that paradigm today, it's completely upside down. So if you look at the MSCI green bond index, it's yielding around 2% today. And that's not just energy, but it's everything that's lumped into the green, broadly defined category. And we just, it's a very interesting dynamic where you are being paid, if you assume a 2% inflation rate, you're being paid zero in return for the privilege of investing in green fixed income assets. And there was an article I saw recently that the amount of inflows into ESG related fixed income assets. It was astronomical this year and an order of magnitude higher than last year. So that's creating enormous market distortions and the cost of debt. And on the equity side, if you look at the cost of equity, the ENP sector today, by most accounts, is about two and a half times the cost of equity as wind, solar, or other alternative energy sources. But I think that is likely to give rise to all kinds of future distortions in asset prices because fundamentally absent government subsidies, the alternative energy sector is also exposed to commodity prices and it's also exposed to greenfield. And so I'm not convinced that the difference in cost of capital need be so different or need to be so much cheaper than other forms of energy. So if you use that as a backdrop to look at the sector, the interesting question isn't so much about reversionary interests or 
you know, the specifics of how you structure things. I think the bigger point is we need financial innovation on a go forward basis that helps bridge many investor concerns around sustainability of the asset class and profitability of the asset class with the fundamental need of capital in the asset class. And whether it's a reversionary interest structure or some other structure for, I think, many of the people who are either involved in the industry on the company side in a finance role or those of us who are on the investment side, I think there will be a huge opportunity in the next four to five years to fill that financing gap. And I think the financial innovation component of it will be a big driver of when, how, and to what degree that occurs. Absolutely, Shaya. It's, uh, it's interesting with how you're comparing the sector with alternative energies and, and talking about the sustainability of classes, etc. I can't go the whole podcast without asking to get your take on the result of the election. Obviously, it's a hot topic. It, it's still fresh in everyone's minds. And I think it's been one of the more interesting elections of recent past in that if you look at the Trump administration and, and the direction they are proposing for the industry and Biden's administration and the direction they have proposed for the industry, obviously they're two radically different outlooks. Biden has obviously come out on top uh, and emerged victorious from the election. So is that, in your opinion, a push in the right direction? And if so, why is that? Or, or does a Biden victory set up more roadblocks for the industry and, and investors like yourself and make it more difficult to come up with this financial innovation that you're talking about? For as long as I can remember, policy has always created uncertainty in the energy sector. And I think it's one of the points I made earlier about how energy is a different cyclical industry than many other industries that perhaps uh, others uh, in the investment sector might be looking at. I think there's probably a lot of different rabbit holes we can go down into in terms of how it affects folks with onshore versus offshore exposure, federal versus non-federal. I think the point I would make is, and then there's a whole other layer of um, how the Senate and the rest of the um, legislator plays out in terms of seats between you know, the Republicans and the Democrats. But I think the salient point here is, is that with this sort of change comes uncertainty and with uncertainty comes opportunity. So we think that regardless of whatever direction it ends up taking from a policy standpoint, there will be greater volatility. And with that greater volatility, there's the possibility for mispricings. And as a firm, those are the types of situations we look for. People can price assets in good environments if everyone agrees it's good or bad environments if everyone agrees it's going to be bad. But it's those indeterminate moments in the market where there's disagreement over the outlook and uncertainty where mispricings occur. And as an investor, we look at those as being, you know, particularly good vintages to be in the market and to be deploying. 100%. No, I think that's a really, a really nice note on, uh, on which to start wrapping it up. So, Shah, it's been great speaking with you. I really appreciate your time. I really appreciate you sharing your views on the industry and, and your approach towards the industry. It, it certainly is an interesting approach, an exciting approach, an innovative approach. And, and I've really, really enjoyed talking about it and learning more. Uh, about how, how you're going about that. And I'll, I'll look forward to seeing how that evolves and, and how that develops for you over the next six, 12, 18 months and beyond. But to wrap it up, I'd just like to hand it over to you for some closing comments to, to summarize what we've talked about, to, to share your, your views on the next steps for the industry and just to talk about maybe any, any partnership opportunities you'd be interested in hearing about or, or like to have brought to your attention. So, and just a, a closing message to any of your industry peers listening in. 
Well, Ben, I think you've done a terrific job of covering a broad swath of topics. So I'm not sure I can add a whole lot more to it other than to thank you and, and your listeners for, for spending the time today. We're always excited to connect with capable management teams and have always been better for the people we partnered with. And uh, we look forward to being, uh, being in this business for a long time to come. And I wish everybody out there the best of health and thank you for having me on this podcast. Hey guys, thanks for listening to the podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. If you'd like to speak with Shire about any of the points that he has raised during today's episode, or if you would be interested in exploring potential partnership opportunities with Onyx Point Global Management, then please email me at benjamin.west at energycouncil.com. The Energy Council represents the most senior and influential network of energy executives and investors in the world. Throughout the year, we leverage our relationships and industry knowledge to facilitate introductions on behalf of our clients help them to place capital, buy and sell deals, and form new partnerships. If you are interested in learning more about the ways we can help your team by connecting you with executives like Shire, then please email me directly or visit our website at www.energycouncil.com. Also, please don't forget to subscribe to the podcast and be sure to share these episodes with anyone in your network who you think would enjoy them. Thanks, and see you next time. Mm-hmm.